Welcome to the CFOleader.com podcast. Really excited to have Carl Seidman here today. This podcast is affectionately called Your Financial Models Suck. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to be talking all about financial modeling. And I, I mean, I, I've named this episode appropriately because I think most finance leaders as they're building models um, just have that little voice in their head that just like, gosh, like this is, this is, you know, terrible, or I, I wish I could do it better. There's got to be a better way. And it's, it's obviously, you know, intentionally provocative a little bit because I, I you know, I, I mean, I felt it, I'm guilty of it. I've, I've felt it many times. And so Carl, we're really excited to have you with us. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Anthony. appreciate it. Great. All right. So Carl, why don't you take a minute and just talk a little bit about you, your experiences and, and you know, what your background in FP&A and modeling. Sure. Thanks. So um, I'm the founder and principal of Sideman Financial. We uh, essentially have three lines of service, CFO uh, and FP&A advisory, where essentially we go into organizations, typically middle market and below, uh, and help CFOs and their senior financial leadership become better at who they are, uh, whether that is serving as an, an interim CFO or financial director, or actually help coaching and advise people. That's ultimately what we do. Oftentimes, those people don't know what they don't know. And just given our exposure and experience, that's what we help with. Uh, also do FP&A implementation. So companies that either have a weak FP&A function or no FP&A function, uh, ultimately helping them build out that function to be what they need it to be. Uh, oftentimes when you go into middle market and below companies, they have either a very fractured function or no function at all. And so we help develop that both in terms of culture as well as in systems and platforms as well. And then kind of the last tier is in professional development and training. I work with a lot of Fortune 1000 companies, middle market businesses, entrepreneurial companies, uh, and I help their FP&A and, and financial professionals, as well as sometimes even accounting and controllers, become more effective at their jobs, helping them save time, eliminate or minimize mistakes, and ideally help them uh, reduce the amount of rework that they're having to do. That's great. All right. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Um, I'm your host, Anthony Castro, and we're going to dive right in. Uh, your financial models suck. So let, let's talk about this. I, 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 and in, in considering this topic, I wanted to split it into three specific areas. The first one is you know, in a scenario where, you know, hey, you've been tasked with building a model, it could be maybe your operating plan, or maybe it's just an ad hoc project that your your chief executive officer has given to you. Um, but, you know, running and planning uh, a model, and I, I will admit, like, for me, uh, I'm guilty of this many times, uh, for me to organize my thoughts, sometimes I just jump in and I start putting stuff in the Excel, because I just, I, I need some way to kind of organize my thoughts and process like, well, what the heck are the inputs and outputs? And what am I trying to do? And the easiest way for me is just to start doing something, um, which I realize is probably not the best way to do it. But um, that's the first area is just, you know, how to quarterback and, and run a successful planning session for a model. The, the second area is, you know, as a CFO, you will be presented with models that are presented by others, right? And you are put in the position where you have to trust that this model is working correctly, um, or you have to get at least comfortable with it so that when you present it to third parties or other stakeholders, that, you know, whatever data is being presented by this, by this gigantic model, maybe that you've been presented with is actually giving you good data, right? So I wanted to focus a little bit on that. And in that scenario, how as a CFO, you can get more comfortable with, you know, testing, um, you know, and, and raising your comfort, comfort level and confidence level that a, a model that you weren't necessarily in the weeds writing every single formula is, is working correctly. 
Um, and then the third area we'll talk about is just, you know, if you personally, or you want someone in your team to get better at modeling in general, how do you do that? Right. So sure. let's talk about the first area. So, you know, I, I think the operating plan, which is maybe one of the more complex models that happens on a recurring basis, you got multiple stakeholders, every department's involved, um, you know, from your perspective, you know, what, what are the best practices in your way? If you're trying to plan out a complex model scenario, how would you approach it and, you know, steps and what are, you know, some advice that you would get to, to different CFOs that are, that are running through that? Yeah, I appreciate the, the question, Anthony. So people often go wrong. And I would say your example even fits into this as well as oftentimes you're not exactly sure where you're going. You just want to open up the, the file and start building this thing uh, the way that, that, that it's in your mind. Now, the challenge that comes with that is even though that might feel natural and you've done it dozens of times historically, what often happens is that months or quarters down the road, you open up that model and you say, you know, this is, this is just not where I want this thing to be. <laughs> and if I could turn back the clock, I would, and I would have designed this completely differently. And I'm only talking about months or quarters. I mean, there are some companies where these models will live for years. And the problem is, particularly in FP&A, is if you have a model that's living for years and it's built in, you know, to use your, the word of your, your title, crappy, if it's a crappy model that, to begin with, it's going to end up being really difficult to manage and build out and position for the purposes that you've, you've intended down the line. And so what I always advise people on, if I'm going into a company, this is always surprising to, to many of the people who I work with, is it takes a while to build a framework, a map, and a pathway uh, that you're going to be taking. So if I'm going to work with a company, I'm going to spend a lot of time, not just with the you know, director of FP&A or the head of finance or the CFO, I'm going to be sitting down with or interviewing department heads, the non-financial people, and say, what is it that you are focusing on from a planning perspective? It's not just forecasting, but from a planning perspective. And then I take all of that information, I put it together in a model, model design before I even start building the model. So what's often surprising to, to companies and people who work there is it may be weeks of interviewing, of research and diligence before I even open up a file and start building. So that's really one of the biggest points that I would raise is identify where you're going, what your mandate is, what you're trying to accomplish, who's going to be A, touching the model, but B, benefiting from the model, and what does that all mean for model design? In some ways, I recommend building, I shouldn't say building, but designing the model backwards and building the model forwards. If you know where you're going and you can design from the output, then when you build forwards, it's that much easier to construct it. Yeah, that makes sense. Tell me this, this concept of your model design document, right? If I were looking at the hypothetical table of contents, I guess, of this model, what is the content of that document, the flow? What are you expressing and, and organizing in that document? Sure. So one, is this going to be an internal model that's used to run operations? Is this going to be a funding model that we're going to use to, to raise capital? Uh, are there outside advisors or maybe even a, a board of advisors or board of directors that needs to look at this in a different dimension? And so typically what you're going to see at the beginning or at the start of any model that I build is going to be a table of contents probably a narrative or an explanation as to what this model is. And then very quickly, a summary of some sort. So it's not gonna be hundreds and hundreds of lines long of, of a forecast. 
It's going to be maybe a dozen lines long of a financial summary. It might be a dashboard. Um, it might be a handful of abbreviated financials that will allow somebody to spend five minutes looking at what it says and gather what's behind uh, those summaries or, or that dashboard. Thereafter, obviously, in the guts of the model, there's all the supporting information. It starts with a summary, it starts with key points, and then it gets into the detail instead of the other way around. In addition to those summaries, I also want to know what kind of information is going to be required to populate this model and from whom, how often is it going to be refreshed or, or repopulated, and how can we build this as efficiently and logically as possible? Um, something that, you know, it, it's still something that catches me off guard, even with the couple of decades of experience that I have, is I'm a pretty sophisticated modeler. I've built probably hundreds of models throughout my career. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I have the best modeling ability and that I should make these really robust, sophisticated, advanced models. But what that does for me is it allows me to simplify clean models so that I can present them to somebody like you, Anthony, or somebody else who can spend a few minutes and say, I understand what I'm supposed to get. I don't really need to even understand the intricacies of the mechanics. If I need to understand the assumptions that are taking place, I can ask Carl or I can further dive in deeper to the model. So it sometimes takes a more advanced modeler to build something that is simple and clean and easy to understand. Right. And it gives you the information that you need. That makes total sense. Um, and, and so the, the key takeaway right here is just basically not following your gut, which would be maybe to jump in and start modeling things, but to right. sit back, talk with people, understanding the audience, the stakeholders. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you use, I mean, cause in my mind, when I have, when I've been trying to wrap my head around things, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll go on my whiteboard and I'll, I'll make circle like squares and saying, all right, this is my sheet one. This is going to be this sheet. It's going to have these contents in it. This is my second sheet. It's going to be my, I don't know, my sales tab. It's going to have this and this and this. And that's, I have to like visualize it as I'm kind of thinking the structures and what things are going to link back and forth. I'm curious if you use that kind of visual something, you know, from that aspect to kind of Absolutely. And everyone's going to be different. Sometimes I'm going to do with post-it notes. So I would just get, you know, a stack of, of post-it notes. I've got thousands of these on my desk and I will just start writing it out and I'll put it on my desk, or maybe I'll even go into my kitchen and I'll put these things all over my kitchen table or all over my office. And I will map out what I think this thing needs to look like. The problem that I, that you, that so many of us have is that when you just start building this thing without thinking about where it's going, literally within a day's period, you could have turned a model into spaghetti where all of this data is overlapping in really illogical ways. And then you just start building and building and building and it becomes almost impossible to unroll. Um, if I can just give a, a real quick example, um, you know, there's a, a Fortune 500 company, professional services company in the north suburbs of Chicago that I've worked on and off with for probably four years. And while they certainly have very robust systems, a lot of their analysis and planning happens in Excel. They have what I sometimes commonly refer to as, as a legacy model. So a model that was built many years ago, arguably by mm -hmm. people who don't even exist at the firm or at the company anymore. They've moved on and people inherit the model 
they make their changes, they might move to a different project or function or company, and the new people inherit the model. So it's inheritance upon inheritance upon inheritance. This one particular model runs a one plus billion dollar book of business at this company. And the challenge that this company had years ago is they said, look, Carl, this thing is so strung together, it's old, can you unwind it? And I started going through it and my answer to them was no. It's so strung together with so many layers that don't make logical sense that you'd really be better off building this thing from scratch, mm. running it in parallel with the legacy model and then retiring the legacy model. So if you are thinking about where you're going and potential pitfalls along the way, then ultimately you build a model that can last for months, quarters, ideally years, and can be used by a whole multitude of different people, not just the person who's running the model. Okay, let, let's talk a little bit about model architecture. And I want to jump back to a point that you talked about where, like you said, many people, when they build models three or four months down the road, they look back and they're like, hey, I wish I would have done this differently. And so I, I, the way that I've dealt with that is I like my models, like for example, when I'm doing my operating plan, I like my models to be high level. And I, I kind of split it into my core model and then I'll have specialized models that dive into specific sections. So for example, uh, sales. Uh, in my SaaS companies, you know, I, my input for sales is just ARR. I'm not breaking down products. I'm just, I know how much ARR I'm booking, a simple assumption of how much uh, implementation revenue I may have or non-recurring, that's it. Mm -hmm. I'll have a separate model that I build for my sales team, which will go much deeper. And we'll talk about, you know, the different product mix, um, expectations around, you know, maybe new products that are coming out. It's a lot more rigid and specific with assumptions around that. But I don't like incorporating that into my main model because I as you said, one month you get down and you just, the model's busted because the assumptions are all broke because, you know, the, the product mix was different and this and that. And it, it just makes the, the model too rigid and I'm, I'm, sure. I'm regretting it. So I'm curious from an architecture standpoint and, and, and sp speaking about the example that you were talking about, which seems like this huge monolithic model, when is it appropriate and best practice to, you know, incorporate any, everything into a monolithic sense or to, is it always best to break out things when necessary and keep your core model high level and flexible? Does that make sense? It does. Um, and my not such great answer to you is it really depends. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> the reality, well, let me give an example. Maybe two to three weeks ago, I was on a call with the divisional CFO of a major oil company. And we were talking about forecasting accuracy and what degree of detail is helpful in improving uh, forecast accuracy, what diminishes it. And what was interesting was they had done an internal assessment and they said, look, when we're really high level, our forecasting accuracy is, is quite bad. But surprisingly, when we get to a really refined level of detail, our forecasting accuracy is really bad. So what they find is that it's somewhere in the middle. You can't always start out at a macro level and say, okay, well, let's just take uh, an ARR and increase it by 5% at a macro level, because that's a good assumption, right? right? Well, it's a place to start, but your accuracy is going to probably be garbage. On the flip side, if you have... 10,000 customers and you're forecasting 10,000 customers at a granular detail, yes, your accuracy might be a little bit better, but chances are you're going to be so consumed with these small customers that it's not going to make a big difference. And so where you're going to have to find a happy medium is how can we classify certain customers? Maybe if we've got a thousand customers, we actually do a granular forecast for 
200 of them. And then for the remaining 800, we classify them by certain characteristics or certain behavior. Uh, so we're not having to forecast every single one, we forecast them by group. On the flip side, what's also important is to understand, you know, where do you, Anthony or anyone else, want to be spending your time? I mean, you're if, if you're a CFO or a head of FPA, do you really want to be spending all of this time on sales forecasting at a very, very granular level? Do you want to reforecast it every month? Or can you forecast it at a mid-level and reforecast it every say two or three months to get a heightened level of, of accuracy? In terms of kind of the, the remaining question of, does it make sense to build this all in one model or to have different models talking to each other? Again, it kind of depends. I tend not to like to, to, to put in lots and lots and lots of data and moving parts into one model. It starts to become this default of, oh, we have new assumptions, let's put it in the model. We've got new data, let's put it in the model. We've got another party that we need to be presenting this to, let's add another worksheet, put it into the model. And pretty soon you end up with a model that's got 50 worksheets and it becomes almost impossible to manage. So what I would suggest is have the main operating model that can be fed by data assumptions in other work files, whether that's Excel, Google Sheets, or even like an, an EPM or an ERP. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that makes sense. I, I, I wanna touch base on your on your example when you talked about that that client that you were working with that had a, a big file and your, your, your result of your analysis was just basically, hey, we need to scrap this and start again. So if, what, what is your advice to CFOs for the, the signs that, you know, hey, you know, this, this, this operating plan needs to be scrapped. We need to start again, because like, I, I mean, I'll admit it. I put a lot of time in building a model and next year when it comes around, I'm hoping I can gain some efficiency by like, all right, I got the base model there. I don't have to do this whole thing again. I can just add in new, add new historicals, add in some additional functionality and I'm good to go. So I, I think mm -hmm. that's a tendency that maybe a lot of CFOs do, but in your mind, when is it the clear signs that, you know, Hey, the, the business has changed. You got to scrap this. We need to start from scratch again. Sure. So, I mean, I, I look at models in, in a couple of different ways. I look at it from a mechanical standpoint and I look at it from an intelligence standpoint. Uh, you know, from the mechanical standpoint is, is this model built in a user-friendly kind of a way? Can it be updated quickly and easily? Do I have to update all of my formulas every time I do an update or do they automatically update? Is it very flexible? meaning that I can add in new products, I can add in new line items, and it doesn't break the model. So mechanics, they, they need to be there and they need to be strong. What sometimes happens is I'll go into a company and they say, look, this is a good operating model. It gets us the results, but it's just so clunky. It takes us forever to update this thing. If we're talking in an Excel context, they might say, we've got to turn on manual calculations instead of automatic ones because it just takes so long to build uh, or, or so long to calculate and process. So if the model is working from an intelligence standpoint, which is perhaps most important, but it's not working from a mechanical one, there are some practices or, or some changes that you can make right away to change the size of the model, you know, the, the memory size, the processor being bogged down, and ideally even change around some formulas that, that are, are slowing the machine down. Assuming you've built good mechanics and they can grow with the model, What's really most important is making sure that the model actually reflects the reality of the business, that it's providing you the intelligence that you need. 
if you have new data and your business model has changed around, you're bringing it in and the model's not getting you what you want. Well, the question you have to ask is, well, can we re-engineer the current model or do we need to build it entirely from scratch? What often does happen is models can come built in different iterations where the company ultimately outgrows it. If you have a company that's doing say $10 million worth of revenue and three years later, they're doing $85 million worth of revenue, that model might not be at the level of maturity that you now need. Uh, at the same time, I would say, don't just look at the operating model from within Excel, ask yourself what other kinds of platforms do we need to have involved? Uh, I often caution companies that are getting to be lower middle market or, or core middle market to be running their businesses off of Excel. It just becomes so manual and so difficult to track iterations as well as to collaborate with department heads. So I don't just look at graduating the model from one version of Excel to another version of Excel or one iteration of Google Sheets to another, but actually ask what the maturity model and processes are of the business and whether that model needs to be maintained in Excel or whether it's just presented in Excel. One, one last point I wanna add, um, there was a senior FP&A leader at, a, at another oil company in, uh, in Canada, who I crossed paths with a couple of years ago. And he said, look, you know, we're a growing company. We're changing around all the time. Our assumptions are, are always being flipped. And we use Excel to get from the 90% of the way to the 100% of the way on our planning and analysis. We could never get it from zero to 100 all using Excel. We use other systems to get us from the zero to 90%. But ultimately, we can't use those other systems to get us from the 90 to 100. So identify what the model needs to look like in what context and at what level of maturity of the organization. Okay, well, that makes sense. Before we move on to our next topic, I, I just I wondered if you know for for those of us who have or you know are are using complex models or or have to build complex models, I'm curious if you have from your perspective. And I know there's you know different ways to do this, but um, in terms of the design and best practices of the actual model itself, like for example, I, I've read from some places that some people like having. Um, you know, only inputs on one tab. You should only have inputs on one worksheet and then outputs on another, uh, you know, those type of, 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 of best practices. Any, any for, to minimize complexity and, and, you know, so that later on when you're coming back a year later to your operating model or whatever, you can actually follow it. Any best practices that you can give our audience on that? On what your thoughts? Sure. So there are some standard practices that, that I would employ in any company. But when I go into a business, I mean, I'm coming in, into a business as an outside advisor or counselor. And so when I come in, even though I might have my standards, ultimately, I need to build this model in the best interest of that company. I can't just come in and say, look, your way is wrong. This is right. Um, I've used this on 50 companies before. Trust me on this. What I can say is, look, I've done this on 50 other companies like you. I'm going to borrow a lot of what was successful for them, but I'm going to put it into your language in a way that you can use. And one point that, that I want to raise before I answer this question more fully is that when I go into a business, look, I can build the most advanced, robust model that somebody has probably ever seen, but that's not always a good service for people who aren't that astute in financial modeling. So I can put something together and they say, this is great. We don't know how to use it. And it would take us a tremendous amount of effort to, to get caught up to speed. And so I have to know who my audience is. 
On the flip side, I can do something that's really basic and, and be able to connect it to the people who are going to be using it. But that's always that's not always the best service either of saying, well, I could do something that's very robust and help your company, but because you're not at that level, I can't give it to you. That's a disservice as well. And the third point that I would make is, well, I can do something that's robust, that's sophisticated, but it's easy enough for me to teach you. I could spend 30 minutes or 20 minutes teaching you how to use this particular function or this particular technique, and ultimately you can run with it. So it's usually that third choice that I go with. In terms of standards that, that I like to go with, as it relates to assumptions, I want to call them out. I don't want somebody to have to fish throughout the model to have to find out where to control the model. Um, it's usually not going to just be one assumptions page. I'm probably going to do, if I had to say kind of generically, if I'm building an Excel model for a middle market company, it'd probably be in the range of three to six assumptions pages where they are called out at the very front of the model and somebody can literally march through those three or six pages and say, okay, here's a revenue build. Here's a cost build. Here's an overhead expense build. Here's a specific labor build. And they can, you know, as you even mentioned with the ARR example, instead of having it be high level, they can dive a deeper level into one or more key line items that are going to have the greatest amount of influence on the model. Thereafter, I'm going to put together what I would call a synthesis, which is going to be where all my calculations take place. So on supporting schedules, on roll forwards, on an analysis, on waterfall that ultimately feeds my financial statements, if it's even in that operating model. And then thereafter, it's going to be my supporting data. I don't want to lead with my data. I want it to be there to, to vouch back to, but I don't want to hand this off to you, Anthony, and, and have you be bogged down by the data. I want you to see the assumptions first, the calculations and the summaries and then be able to vouch back to the data if you need to. Some further approaches that I would take are I, I personally use different font colors. So I will use blue for inputs and hard-coded figures. I will use black for headers or formulas. Uh, some of my clients don't like those. And so I'll create some toggles, allow me to turn it literally at the click of a button through conditional formatting to say, turn off all my font colors, have 100% black font. And then I get back to my office and I say, no, turn them on so that I can model more effectively. And I don't have to you know, use the, the paintbrush function or use any kind of font colors. It's literally just done at the click of a button and across the entire model. Uh, I also want to make sure that I'm not daisy chaining formulas. So I'm not connecting this formula to this formula to this formula to this formula to this formula. So that in the instance that I have a breakage in one of them, it causes a chain reaction and breaks the whole model. I'll typically tie a lot to those assumptions pages so that it's almost like a hub and spoke system of here's the, here's the assumption. It flows here. It flows here. It flows here. It flows here. So the only place that it's really connected is to that root sourced cell. Mm. Other approaches, obviously, that I would make, no hard coding of formulas, make sure that I'm documenting my assumptions so that if somebody comes and challenges me, what they, which they will, Carl, where did you come up with that assumption? What data were you, uh, what data were you relying upon? Who did you talk to that allowed you to come up with the conclusion that you did? I come from a litigation, uh, a litigation consulting background, which meant that I was always used to the opposing side poking holes in everything that I did. And for better or for worse, I've carried that over into my, my FP&A work where I'm always expecting questions, always expecting somebody to challenge my assumptions. And I want to be as clean as it possibly can be. I love that. Okay. That, great, great, great data on that. Let's move on to our, our next topic. So I, I think a 
a, a nightmare scenario that a lot of CFOs have, you know, is just, you know, presenting a model or maybe you have some data up, you're in a board meeting or executive meeting. And so as you're presenting the data live, someone finds an error or is reviewing it and says, wait, that's not right. This is incorrect or whatever, and, and reveals something. And it just, you know, it, it instead of becoming a, a meaningful discussion of the message of the model, it becomes a discussion of, well, is this model right? What else is wrong with it? And totally distracts from it. So, um, you know, CFOs obviously, you know, at some point are always presented with a model from their teams at some point that they have to take and, you know, rely on to make decisions and present to the board. And so getting comfortable with not your own work, but the work of someone else, a subordinate or whatnot, and feeling confident that the model is working correctly is I think something that a lot of CFOs want to make sure that they have that skill set. So if, I mean, let's just use you as a use case, you know, if you were given a model and let's say a CFO hired you and say, Hey, you know, you know, Carl, this model is giving me the information I need. However, I'm scared to death that, you know, five months from now, there's going to be a big variance in, in my ending cash to what my projected cash. And then we're going to dig in and there's going to be some mistakes. Someone flipped a, you know, a positive negative sign or this or that. And it's just, it's just wrong. And I, I'm that, that's what keeps me up at night. So how would you, or what would you counsel a CFO that has that concern to be better, um, you know, have better uh, uh, skills and a tool set to be able to analyze and stress test these models to feel confident that really they're working. Like, you, as you said before, mechanically, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. Um, you know, as I had pointed out before, I, I look at all models uh, and, and forecasts from the mechanics and intelligence perspective. You know, the, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm nervous that somebody flipped the signs, that, that's a mechanical issue. And, you know, if you've got a model that's mechanically wrong, I mean, you've got obviously got a problem. So you've got to make sure that the person who is building the model is competent, that they know what they're doing, that they're not just a, an Excel guru, that they really understand finance and accounting and business and the industry and the uniqueness of the institution that, that you're in. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes highlight for people, you know, you should always be building your skills but just because you're a good mechanical modeler doesn't mean that you actually understand everything that's that's underlying. In addition, on the intelligence side, what we have to realize is that in modeling, models are always wrong. That doesn't mean that they're not useful. But if we're in you know time period zero and we're trying to forecast for the next 18 months, you're going to be wrong. You have to get comfortable with being wrong. But the focus of a good model and a forecast isn't just about improving forecast accuracy and numerical precision. It's about coming to good assumptions, the expectations, the predictions, uh, the guesses that you are coming up with to be able to plan for the future. If you were a CFO and you say, look, I'm looking at this model, I'm, I'm just nervous, I've got all this trepidation about being able to rely upon it. First and foremost, you got to make sure that the mechanics are right. Assuming that the mechanics are right, that's why, I don't want to say grilling necessarily, but, but really being uh, adamant about challenging the assumptions is what it's all about. I was with a, a SaaS company uh, two weeks ago, a very high profile SaaS company that probably everybody listening to this uh, would know. And when we're coming up with a project valuation, doing a forecast for the next six years, your forecast for the next year is probably going to be inaccurate, but then for the next two, three, four, five, six is going to be even more inaccurate. 
But that doesn't mean that you can't come up with assumptions and directional correctness to be able to start making decisions today. And what I shared with this group of, of mid to senior level FPNA professionals is that, look, if you were to change your growth rate for your for your revenue, for your customer base by half a percent, the impact to your valuation could be tens of millions of dollars. So your growth rate, a half a percent, five years, six years out from now, could have the impact of a 10 plus million dollar valuation difference. And so you have to ask yourself, look, what is the consequence of getting that wrong? Is it really as significant as we think that it will be? But if we can have a band, a range of future expectations, given a growth rate of say five and a half to seven and a half percent on the top line, where's that going to put us? What can we plan for today about capital expenditures, about hiring, about capital raising, if we're going to be in that future range? It's not just about accuracy. It's about vetting the assumptions and getting comfortable with the assumptions while minimizing the risk to yourself as well as the organization. Right. Something that I've done during my planning sessions, um, I, again, coming back to the, the mechanical side, is as part of the planning session, not only do I plan out you know, the inputs and outputs and the design of the model. I also have a Q&A portion of my planning, which basically I'm listing out specific scenarios to stress test my model. So for example, if I cut all of my sales and marketing hires, I would expect obviously that my sales and marketing spend should be zero. If I do that and it doesn't come out to zero, that's clear indicator, obviously, that there's something wrong with the model uh, and that, you know, there's something not linked up correctly. But I, I create a bunch of these different scenarios where it's it's plainly clear that you're, you're taking the model to one extreme or the other and the result should be very clear. And I like, you know, as your, your note as well, um, a, a lot of times the best way in addition to validate is just to do some back of the napkin type math, right? I think you would suggest that as well is create a scenario manually create, you know, calculate out some figures and is the model giving you what you would expect, right? That's probably a way to get some reasonableness and assurance with that from that perspective, right? Absolutely. And this goes back to rather than just being a, an Excel guru, uh, you know, I'm a CPA by trade. And when I make changes to my model, reflecting certain journal entries in one or two line items, does the model move in the direction that I would expect? Right? It's just not, hey, let's make sure that the formula is correct. Let's make sure that the underlying assumptions make sense. If I increase my growth rate, does my revenue go up? If I decrease my cost of borrowing, do my interest expenses go down? Um, if I you know, front load a, a construction project, do I anticipate that my accounts receivable are going to increase? If I decrease my day sales outstanding, do I anticipate I'm going to have an improvement in my cash flow? So these are all underlying accounting and financial and economic assumptions that you've got to test. And you really should do it with every single line item. When I build an operating model or a financial model, I'm literally going to go line by line by line through the model and say, is this tied out? Does this make sense? If I sensitize it, is it moving in the right direction? And to the last point that you made, you know, we're all, I mean, hopefully most of us are all very smart business and finance people, we can probably say, look, I would guess that we're probably going to be somewhere between this number and this number. You know, my cash balance is going to be somewhere between seven and a half and a million dollars, 
you know, taking a look at what we've had historically, as well as the growth rate that I, I, I anticipate having, as well as the attrition, I think it's going to be within that range. It's a guess, but if I build my model, is the model giving me the result that I anticipated based upon my gut intuition? Chances are, well, hopefully it will be. Um, I always caution companies to say, like, look, let's just take a guess. Let's just go for it without doing the analysis. I've had clients actually do that, where they say, look, we, we think that we're going to grow tremendously. We've got the money to be able to do the investment. Let's do it. I say, look, you can use that instinct to you know, be a data point, but I would not recommend that you move forward with this you know, $3 million investment without actually going through the analysis and justifying that you need to make it. I think a very valuable skill that is essential for any successful modeler is, is the ability, you know, to build the model, but then also be able to step away, get away from the tunnel vision of the numbers, the formulas, and then just think, does this make sense? And step away from that and, and step into that reviewer. It, it's, it's difficult. It's very difficult, it especially is. with you know, the complex, a complex yeah. thing. You just, you're, you're <laughs> a number swimming in your mind and then having to step back and be like, does this make sense? Does this make sense? I think that is a skill that is just imperative, right? When you're that much a model. It right? is. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, when you're building it out mechanically after you put together the plan for days or weeks before you even start to build, put it to bed, go to sleep, wake up, look at this with a fresh set of eyes, have somebody else take a look at it. You know, there's probably smart people who understand what you've built, have them bet, bet what you've done. But also, a, you know, a point that I only briefly brushed upon at the very beginning of our, our conversation is run it by non-financial people. Right, run it by your salespeople, run it by your marketing people, your ops people, your purchasing team. Make sure that the assumptions that they're making in their plan are being translated correctly in your model. And then you know, sensitize, flex the model and the assumptions to say, look, if we were to make this change, is this what you would expect to see? Do you think this is realistic or do you think that this is far-fetched? So while I look at you know an FPA or a finance person as being the owner or the manager of the model, ultimately it's other people who are gonna to need to have a say and be collaborative partners in that. They should be part of the planning process. We in finance should really be kind of the managers or facilitators. Great. Uh, well, before we go to our last quick topic, just to summarize uh, big points right now, one is obviously for good financial modeling, it's all about planning, right? I, and I kind of see the, just the parallels with just, you know, software development, right? Software development, when you build software, you plan, you build it, you know, you architect what you want to build, you start building, right? And then obviously a, a core part of that to ensure that what you built is mechanically sound, you build in tests, you build in scenarios, and you have your tests laid out so that you can be confident that, hey, this, you, you push button A, you had result B come out, which is what you expected. Did that actually occur, right? So planning is very... Um, is very essential from that. I love this idea of having, you know, your, your, you know, how to build a model, right? And in my mind, you know, you would have a, you know, a Google template, right? Which is just, hey, I have a new model. I'm going to copy my template. Here's my table of contents. Here's all the things I need to go through, the questions as just a starting point. And that's just a living document that as you grow through your career and scenarios, you're adding to it, making it better. And you're building basically your internal modeling process and framework to uh, to produce better 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 materials right do absolutely i have i have a template document that i use for it's like a kickoff modeling document when i go into a company i take it with me usually helps spur the first three conversations that i have and that directs us towards the build out but you have to start with a framework and a and a pathway before you start start taking out the hammer and start building away right 
So for our last comment, you know, just for, for people out there that are listening, you know, that want to become a better modeler, right? You know, obviously, you know, some people are, you know, in FPNA and that's all they do. Other people, um, you know, maybe they're CFOs, they, they're not in models all the time, but they recognize that they need to better their skills. They want to become better at, you know, best practices or, you know, just, you know, formulas or, 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 or building the models themselves. What, what is your advice to those people that are just trying to up their game, become better and, uh, you know, hone their skills? Sure. So as I had highlighted, um, I look at FPNA as being a jack of many trades. It's not jack of one trade of, of being a good Excel modeler. Uh, I think if you turn the clock back, maybe even just 10 years ago, if you were to say what makes a good modeler, it's somebody who's very well versed in Excel. That to me doesn't cut it at all. You can have some phenomenal young people who are learning from YouTube, which is a great resource about how to you know, use Excel a lot more impactfully. If that's the direction you wanna go in, I think that that will help you for sure. You can get free videos, tutorials off of YouTube, um, to, can certainly go onto LinkedIn. There are countless resources for building your Excel abilities. However, the challenge is that you don't get the side of finance, of accounting, of business, of industry, of strategy, of communication, of leadership. And all of those skills are vitally important for um, being a successful financial modeler as well as a successful FPNA professional. Um, so you can find lots of training organizations uh, that have you know, ex-investment bankers, ex-private equity professionals, uh, even ex-CFOs. You can have you can find professors who put together phenomenal training programs on you know maybe it's three statement modeling or you know certain other elements of financial modeling, which are terrific as well. But again, the problem with FPNA is you're not addressing the leadership side, the industry side, the business side, the critical thinking side, the data visualization side, the summary side. And so, you know, if I can be maybe a little bit self-serving here, perhaps, um, 10 years ago, I started doing training and facilitation of my own because I took a look. I said, look, there are lots of really good Excel trainings out there, but they don't touch FPNA. There are a lot of brilliant investment bankers and PE people, but they don't really touch FPNA either. So there was a giant gap in the marketplace and I ended up building multi-day long curriculums addressing you know, what you need to know in FPNA to be both a better financial modeler as well as a better FPNA professional. And so many of the modules that I would uh, highlight in some of my programs would be you know, the art of better business modeling, uh, data visualization, presentation skills, and storytelling, strategic FPNA, managing scenarios, sensitizing analysis, um, putting together uh, an analysis without having to put together robust models, and then even touching upon not just Excel, but also Google Sheets or EPMs like Planful or Anaplan or other more robust systems, and where are we going in FPNA? So I think that you know, whether it's my program or other Excel tutorials or you know, financial modeling trainings that are offered by Wall Street Prep or others, those are all tremendous places that you can go. But the last piece that I would just share is you can never go wrong with just learning more, sharpening your saw, building up your skills and becoming a much more well-rounded professional. 
that's not just on the technical side, but that's also on the non-technical side as well, becoming a much more effective leader, critical thinker, and communicator. This is great. Well, I'll tell you before our conversation today, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, an okay, decent modeler. I'm questioning myself now after our conversation. So I think I got some stuff I got to learn and, and brush up on, but uh, I've learned, this has been incredibly valuable. I've learned a ton of just from our discussions on these different items. Um, appreciate uh, your time with us. And uh, um, we hope to see, uh, hope to see you again, because I'd love to pick your brain on other separate topics uh, in the future. So it's been very enlightening. Sure. So thank you, everyone. I'm your host, Anthony Castro. This has been the CFO Leader Podcast. Thanks and have a great day.